Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Daniel, chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day. We have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, Hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. 
Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies, O Lord. Hear, O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for, for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening off. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And all the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, and till the end of the war desolations are determined. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. This is the word of the Lord. In flipping through our collection of tabletop magazines, I came across a sort of striking statement on the back of one. It's a advertisement for Ligonier Ministries, but these words are big, and it's the kind of the motto: "Right thinking precedes right living." That might be thought of as a no duh kind of thought, but uh, right thinking is not something that God's people are particularly famous for having. In the prayer that Daniel prayed in verse 14, uh, verse 13, Daniel prays, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Daniel is praying about the cognitive level of God's people, 
and he is praying in repentance, but he makes the comment, we don't understand your truth. That has been a problem among the people of God for a very, very long time. Back when I was in seminary, I was told a story that was supposedly a true story. I unfortunately can't remember the who and where of the account, and so it will feel a little bit more apocryphal, but I'm told it's a true story. A evangelist who focused on teaching God's truth clearly and logically was approached by one of his friends who said, you know, I don't really value your ministry that much. Because honestly, I have everything I need to know in that classic song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And the evangelist, knowing that the man was an astronomer, looked at him and said, that's interesting because though you are a doctor and you teach in a university, there's a song that tells me everything I need to know about your discipline as well. And he said, Really? Yeah, yeah, there is a song that completely fills me in on astronomy. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. It was actually a good repost, actually, because Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's certainly the truth, and it's a worthy song to sing, but astronomy also begins with, I really want to know what stars are about. And so the songs kind of correspond. There's a lot more to the covenant of God, what God is doing with men, than merely Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But the modern Christian church tends to be very rooted in about that level. Jesus loves me, this I know, the Bible tells me so. They have a very hard time answering any other questions. And that becomes very, very troubling to them, as it really should be. Um, there's just a, a great lack of knowing God, knowing what God is doing, knowing how he does it. Uh, we're just not really famous for that. Why is that? Well, our psalm this morning, Psalm 25, contains in it a, a verse that has always been extremely significant to me. It is verse 14 in Psalm 25. There the, the psalmist says this, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him and he will show them his covenant. Think about that verse for a second. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. There are a number of things to unpack out of that one little verse, and we're going to expand into the psalm uh, to put it in a little bit more context, but you can just work with this verse for a second. The secret of the Lord. God has secrets? Well, yeah, he does. In Bible study this morning, we were looking at Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 2, and there Solomon assures us that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, which means that God hides things. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, 
but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. So uh, does God have secrets? Yes, he does. The Bible says he clearly does. There are things that um, he doesn't just wear on his sleeve and uh, it's out there for common knowledge. But the secret of the Lord is with a certain kind of person, according to this verse, it is with those who fear him. So there's kind of a pre, uh, precondition to learning the secret of God, and that is that you have a fear of God, and it's in a chiastic form so that you have A, B, A. Uh, what does it mean to know the secret of God? Well, that's the, the, the third part of the verse. He will show them his covenant. When asked years ago to uh, choose what doctrine of the Bible is the organizing principle of all Christian religion, I surprised my listener by not choosing the doctrine of predestination. Now, I believe in it, absolutely. Truly, biblically, it's, it's a, a truism. But if you are looking for the organizing principle of Christian religion, if you're looking at that doctrine that puts it in a form and everything is hung on it, it's actually the doctrine of covenant. God is the greater in the covenant. He has approached a people that he would make his own. He has entered into relationship with them. They have made promises to him. He has assured his promises based upon the Lord Christ, which the covenant is all built around. Covenant is the very organizing principle of the Christian religion. But according to verse 14, it's not just directly intuitive. It's not the sort of thing that your average person with, with intelligence and reason uh, can go to the Bible and just kind of read it and go, okay, I got the concept of covenant. I got that one down. But, you know, I understand it here. Uh, God will show his covenant. Other translations translate it, he will teach his covenant. And that seems to be a, a superior translation because the original pictures God working with men, training them like you would train your children. God training people in his covenant to really understand it. Uh, God trains people over the long haul to know his covenant. They learn the secret of God because God is active with them. You have to have the right teacher. It turns out to really know the covenant of God, understand the covenant of God, existentially understand it. Uh, there's only one place you get that, and that's the active work of God in the human being to teach them the covenant, to know the secret of God, to really grow in their apprehension of the faith. God has to teach them. And in Psalm 25, and again, I'm not giving a sermon on Psalm 25. I'm laying a foundation for the sermon out of it. But in Psalm 25, um, it is those who fear him. And before that, he had talked about God being good and he would teach sinners his way. So it's the same idea. Uh, but who are the sinners he'll teach? It's not all of them. It's the humble he will teach. The humble he will lead them. So there's kind of an overlap between fearing God and being humble. If you are prideful, if you are 
self-centered and self-aggrandizing. If you lift yourself up, God's not going to teach you his covenant. He's going to leave you in ignorance because he, he despises arrogancy. But that's not the totality of fearing the Lord. It is part of it. If you're not humble, you don't fear God. But if you look at Psalm 25 in its totality, there are two themes that rise up out of the psalm, and the psalmist, King David, seems to be defining what it means to fear God by these two major themes. The first theme is repentance. All over Psalm 25, you have David repenting. Let me point out just a, a few verses. Uh, beginning with verse 6 and 7. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. So sins in the past, sins now, don't remember those. According to your mercy, remember me, for your goodness sake, O Lord. So the psalmist is freely confessing, I have sinned. When I was a child, I, can, I had childish sins. They were against your majesty in my childhood. Currently, I have sins. Uh, it's against your majesty. I'm asking you to remember your covenant, remember your loving kindnesses, and forgive me because of your mercy. Verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity. The term there speaks about breaking God's law as the great king. Pardon my iniquity, for it is great. And then, uh, even in verse 1, there is the sense of repentance. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Uh, it's a beautiful image, and honestly, I, I can really feel what he's saying. Uh, my soul is the totality of me. It is my body and my spirit. When you, when you consider the whole man together, the Bible uses the term soul. And David is opening the hood of the car and lifting himself to God and saying, please look under the hood. Please examine my entire life because it's not running right. So you've got a, you've got a major, major theme of repentance in this psalm. And you have a theme of teachability. If you go to verse 4 and 5 of this psalm, this is what David says. Show me your ways, O Lord. I don't necessarily know them. I'm ignorant of them. You, O God, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. There's this emphasis on God being the teacher and instructing me as a student. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, and on you I wait all the day. Um, verse 8 through 10. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Or then consider verse 15. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. 
Now here, there's some dovetailing with the idea of humility. And in fact, I even read that verse again. Uh, but to fear the Lord is to be repentant before him, to acknowledge you have sinned against the holy God, to feel the weight of that, to be able to say with David, forgive my iniquity for it is great. I own it. I, I know that my iniquity is, is bone crushing. I don't see it as a light thing. And I'm teachable. I, I have come to the point where I really want you to act the part of the schoolmaster. I want you to teach me what is true. Um, I'm not going to hold back. And I'm not going to arrogantly say, you know, I know how to do this. Actually, if, if Elder Gene were fairly present, I might ask him to explain how joyful it is to have somebody right out of mechanical school come work for him, because what he generally says is they don't know anything and they think they know everything. Well, we tend to kind of be like that to God, and that's arrogant, and there's no learning if you think you already know everything. But in Psalm 25, David has been brought to the point where he is repentant and he's teachable. He acknowledges, I don't know, I'm seeking to know, and there is only one teacher who can teach me, and that is God himself, and I'm willing to let him do that. Once God has brought you to that point, now you're someone who, quote, fears the Lord. You have him in his proper place. He's the king, he's the teacher, he's the God. He's the God of your salvation. You want to learn. Where do those things come from? Well, there is a, a third theme in Psalm 25, which I was tempted to describe as the third aspect of fearing God. But if you look at how it works, it looks like the means of God's hand that brings you to those other things. Why do you come to be repentant? Why do you come to be broken from your arrogance and are willing to be taught? Well, it's this third theme. And the third theme is you have a great desire for restoration. You have come to realize that things have gone very bad. Uh, the average human being goes through life with a certain feeling of dread over their head, but they're afraid of it, and they don't want to look into it. They will tell you in their private moments, you know, I really think life is awful. That's the term they're going to use, but I'm behind the pulpit. Um, but I don't really know why, and I, I want to avoid it. I'm going to do lots of things to avoid having to think about it. Uh, I don't want to deal with the fact that I'm in a state of desolation and loss. But if God is gracious to a person, he will grab them by the head and make them look at the loss, make them look at the desolation, look at what you have become, look at what you have done, look at what you have caused. In this psalm, uh, look, look at this thing, beginning in verse 2. Oh, my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. So the psalmist is surrounded by people who hate his guts and want to hurt him. And the psalmist feels the weight of that and the fact that God, who is sovereignly in charge of history, has allowed that to happen. That's very significant. Um, 
verse 16 through 19. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. That's a man who acknowledges he's not living his best life now. And in fact, if this is going to be the best life, uh, that's, that's pretty bad. This is someone who feels the weight of the effect of human sin and the fact that the desolations that he is suffering come from it. I have brought myself to ruin. I have brought myself to uh, humiliation. Uh, I've done it right before your face, and you've been righteous. You've let all this happen. Uh, and I am acknowledging that, honestly, I don't have a leg to stand on, but things are really terrible, and I want you to fix things. And once you're there, you begin to think about God, and you begin to be repentant, and you begin to be teachable, and that's the estate of fearing God. And if you want to grow in your knowledge of God, if you want to grow in your understanding of who God is and what he does and how he does it, if you want to grow in wisdom and knowledge, that's kind of the foundation. That's, that's where you have to be as a person to become the student of God, where you're going to grow in that. Let's look at Daniel's prayer, which is the first half of our chapter. Comparing it up against uh, Psalm 25, there are exactly the same themes in it. Consider repentance, verse 5 through 11. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in the name of, in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. That is quintessentially repentance. You are righteous. You are the lawgiver. You are the God of our salvation, to quote the psalm. And we have blatantly rebelled. We have sinned against you. 
we, we have broken your laws. We have, have done wickedness. Righteousness belongs to you. You are the definition of it. And we have walked the exact opposite direction. We're admitting it. At least I'm admitting it. I am praying in repentance. I am truly admitting my sin and the sin of my people, which is a direct quote from later in the chapter. Daniel is not praying, oh, Lord, I've been part of a church that really has sinned, but, you know, I didn't really do anything there. But, you know, I'm still going to pray and ask you to deal with those people. He's owning repentance. He is owning a sense of rebellion against God. He is praying in repentance. Uh, He's also praying with a spirit of teachability. If you look at verse 2, how did did all this start? Well, in verse 2 we read, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So this prayer of repentance begins with Daniel reading the Bible. He's reading the exact same book of Jeremiah that you read, and he is seeking to learn. He has turned to God's books, and some translations translated holy books. I'm not sure if that's correct or not, but it's certainly the right idea. He's looking at God's books, the inspired books of God, and he's looking to learn. Arrogant men find Bible study a bore. They find Bible study to be a burden. Their Bibles are covered with dust because they're not really teachable, and unteachable people don't read the Bible because it's just something to fight with. But Daniel begins his prayer in earnest study of the Bible, and he takes God's word at face value. In Jeremiah, it's true. God tells Jeremiah it's going to be 70 years that Jerusalem's going to lay in waste. Jeremiah's words are absolutely true to Daniel. It's going to be 70 years, uh, but this is your word, and it's the truth. There's also the sense of teachability if you look at everything he appeals to. Um, what, what does he keep referring to? The law of Moses, the written word, the prophets. This is a prayer of a man whose repentance uh, is seeping with a yearning to know. We're still in desolation, and it's been about 70 years I really want to know what you're going to do. I want to learn from you. I'm coming to the books. I'm coming to the prophets. I'm coming to what you've spoken through your servant Moses. Teach me. And without doubt, uh, there's a major theme here of feeling desolation. Verse 11 and 12. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. 
For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. Or verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, there was a time when we had been delivered. We had lived in freedom. You had brought us into the promised land where we could worship you. You had given us everything we really needed. You had brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. We have undone everything you've done in doing that. Uh, verse 16 to 19. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury. So he feels the anger and the fury of God. Let your anger and fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Therefore, now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Now, if you were to ask Daniel, what do you want to have happen because you prayed? He would give you two answers, and they'd be interconnected, and these would be honest answers. Uh, he would tell you that I'm praying for the glory of God, and I've emphasized that in my prayer. Uh, the city of Jerusalem lies desolate, and we're scattered through the nations, and everybody is, is making fun of God's people, and because they're attached to God, that's a shame on God's name. The, the, the pagans are heaping abuse on God's people because they want to heap abuse on God. And so I'm praying that God's name be glorified. I'm praying, hallowed be your name. And he wouldn't be lying. He's doing that. But there's a, a huge dose of, oh, Lord, the city lies in ruins and we're slaves and things are terrible, and we'd like you to change that. And there ain't nothing wrong with it. There's nothing sinful about that. He is feeling the weight of the absolute desolation that has been brought on the people of God. And his primary desire in prayer is to see God reverse that. Lord, we have been brought low. We have been absolutely struck down. We are slaves in foreign nations. The city is burned. Lord, my prayer is restore us. The reason why I'm emphasizing this is, A, uh, it, it does dovetail with Psalm 25. The, the structure is exactly the same. But it also dovetails with what the psalmist says in verse 14 the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and to them he will teach his covenant. Because the second half of the chapter is God sends an answer to the prayer. And the answer to the prayer deals with what Daniel is praying about, 
but it deals with it only secondarily. The major focus is, Lord, put us back together. We are shattered. We are broken. We are desolate. Repair us. And the answer that comes from the angel Gabriel does deal with that. The city is going to be restored. Uh, what you prayed about is going to happen. But that's not the major focus of the answer. The major focus of the answer is on God's promises and on God's purposes. And Daniel has kind of uh, approached those in his prayer, but it wasn't the major focus. And so you get the, the feeling, does God know what Daniel's asked? Because he's given an answer, I don't know what Daniel was looking for. But if you realize what's happening here, you've got a man who fears the Lord. He has uh, repentance, he has teachability, he has a sense of the wrath of God driving him to the fear of God. He is the kind of man that Psalm 25 talks about. And so when God answers him, what's God going to do? He's going to teach him his covenant, and that's exactly what the answer does. The, the answer focuses on... The restoration will happen, but it will be in hardship. In verse 25b, we read, uh, The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And that part of a verse will be, uh, you, you, go to, you go to Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and those three books are talking about what that phrase is talking about. The, the city of God, the temple of God is going to be rebuilt. It's going to be in times of great hardship and trouble. We are the church militant, to use the words of the early theologians. If you live on earth, you live in a battle. When you die, the, the older theologians, the early theologians, they said you are the church triumphant. Because when you die you go into the presence of God, you're awaiting the resurrection, and sin, death, corruption, all the things that make war against goodness, you're now totally separated from. So congratulations, you're the church triumphant. But if you live in the world, as long as you're breathing, you are the church militant. You live in a world where the world, the flesh, and the devil hate God, and they're going to hate you by proxy, and you are a soldier of God, and if you feel like every day is a battle, it is. And that's the way it's supposed to be. You are the church militant. You should wake up, and your first thought should be, where is my king? And your second thought should be, where is my sword? And so Daniel is told, yes, there's going to be restoration, as you're praying about. It's going to be in troublesome times. But the restoration is for a purpose. It is not just that people are suffering, and I'm going to alleviate suffering. The reason for the restoration is in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. That's what you're praying about. What's going to happen in that time? Well, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, get rid of them, get them done to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, 
to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So God responds to Daniel and says, yes, I'm going to restore the fortunes of my called out people, my church, but I've made certain promises. And if you look at these statements, all of them refer to promises that God has already made. Um, I'm going to deal with transgression. I'm going to end it. I'm going to make an absolute end of sins. I'm going to reconcile to those who are in iniquity, who have broken my law. I'm going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Every prophecy I've ever made is going to be fulfilled. That's what to seal up vision and prophecy means. And I'm going to anoint the most holy. I've been talking about a Messiah, and he's going to come. And so, yes, I'm going to restore my church. I'm going to restore their fortunes. I'm going to rebuild the city. But you have to understand, it's in the context of everything I promised. I'm I'm not just responding to your prayer. I'm doing things in the world, and my purposes will stand. My promises will stand. And the the last on the list here is Messiah will come. Messiah hadn't come, but Messiah must come. Therefore, I'm going to do these things. That is some very specific teaching of the covenant. Daniel did not pray about Messiah's ministry, but he is a man who fears God, and God desires that those who fear him know his secrets, and know his coming. Years ago, when they were trying to build a Southern Baptist seminary in Kentucky, those who wanted to build it got significant pushback from the churches. There was a group of men who wanted to raise the knowledge of God in the Southern Baptist Church, and they thought, well, the best way to do that is to build a seminary where God will be honored and glorified, and we will teach the things of God like they are. Well, when they went out and asked for donations from churches, a lot of churches folded their arms and said, we just don't see where that's necessary. I mean, you're talking about, you know, some highfalutin stuff here, and As one deacon put it, God doesn't need your learning. Well, hearing that, one of those trying to to forge the seminary looked back at that deacon and said, you know, it's true, God does not need my learning. But it's just as true, God doesn't need your ignorance. And the average Christian does tend to cling to ignorance. He tends to lay hold of, you know, my soul is saved in Jesus Christ. When I die, I'm going to go to heaven. I don't need to know anything else. I'm, I'm perfectly happy with that. Well, what's really being said when you have that attitude? What's really being said is, I don't know the covenant of God. I don't know the secret things of God, and I'm totally down with that. Uh, the Bible refers to me as a simpleton, and really, I don't fear God because I'm happy. That's not where you want to be. You want to fear God, and when you fear God, God will teach you his covenant. And so God is teaching Daniel about the Messiah. The Messiah is going to come, and the Messiah is the focus of everything God is doing. 
that hasn't happened yet, but it has to happen because to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to reconcile those in iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness and to finish off all prophecy, where does all that happen? It happens in Jesus the Christ. And so Daniel is being taught, this is the focus of everything I'm doing in history. And it happened, God. But I'm going to respond to your prayer. I'm going to restore my people because it's going to happen. My promises will stand. Everything happens in the Messiah. And let me tell you a little bit more about the Messiah and how it happens. Going to verse 26a. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. What? You've been promising a prophet, a priest, and a king who will bring in everlasting righteousness. He's going to be cut off? Well, yeah, there's going to be a set amount of time, uh, and I've determined it. And when that amount of time comes to an end, Messiah will be cut off. But he won't be cut off for himself. (laughs) So he's going to suffer death, but it's not going to be for him. It's obviously going to be for someone else. Uh, And the Messiah shall triumph. All those things that uh, I'm answering your prayer about are going to happen. Um, He's cut off for other people, and transgression is finished. Sins have made an end of. Reconciliation happens. Everlasting righteousness is possible. Um, And every, every prophecy comes to its head. But he's cut off for not himself. Um, and oh, by the way, other things will happen at this time. Now, those other things are in verse 26 and 27. And they're very, very uh, covenantal. They are what God is going to do, and it centers around the Messiah. But what does verse 26 and 27 mean? When you get to those verses, um, you definitely have the cross in the beginning of verse 26. Messiah is cut off, but not for himself. And then in the Masoretic text, the, the Hebrew text, as it comes down to us in the hands of the Jews, we read that, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war, desolations are determined. So that makes perfect sense. Right after the cross, give it just a handful of decades and the city is destroyed again. So, you know, okay. And you've got the prince who is to come. The grand majority of evangelicals interpret that kind of as the Romans, but as a kind of a a prototype of Antichrist. And then in the next verse, they definitely start focusing on Antichrist because it reads, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. If I am pre-millennial, that verse makes me happy because it shows me an antichrist who will make a treaty with the Jews, he'll break the treaty, he'll destroy their temple. They don't have a temple right now, 
but they're going to because I believe it because I'm pre pre millennial. And Antichrist will betray them, and desolations will come until the consummation, which I interpret as the end of all things. So in these couple verses, I have my entire premillennial theology. I've got an Antichrist, I've got conspiracy, I've got the destruction of the temple. Uh, I'm going to hammer this home to China. In the Septuagint, which is another transmission of the ancient text to us, these two verses read very differently. Let me read you a translation from the Septuagint. And after the 62 weeks, the anointed, not the prince who shall come, but the anointed, and it references back to the Messiah. I mean, that's what the term Messiah means. So in the Septuagint, we're still talking about the Messiah. And after 62 weeks, the anointed one shall be destroyed. Well, we already saw that. He's going to die. And we read, he shall be destroyed, and there shall be no judgment in him. So the anointed will die. He won't die for himself. And now it's specified that he dies, but there's no judgment for him. He's perfectly righteous. There's no reason why he should be dying, but he is. Uh, there's no judgment in him. And he shall destroy the city and the sanctuary with the prince that is coming. They shall be cut off with a flood, and to the end of the war, which is rapidly completed, he shall appoint the city to desolations. And one week shall establish the covenant with many. Not there will be a conspiracy and there'll be some sort of treaty between an antichrist and the Jews, but rather, verse 27 says, and one week shall establish the covenant with many. When you read the Gospels, what do the Gospels focus on more than anything else in the life of Jesus? Well, if you look for just the amount of ink spilled, all four of the Gospels spend far more time on the last week of Christ's life than any other point. You are walked day by day through that week of passion, and it leads up to the cross and the resurrection, and everything that God is doing covenantally really comes to a head in that week. Uh, the, the proportion of the various Gospels is amazing. In, in the Gospel of Luke, it's, uh, the, yeah, the Gospel of Luke, it's like, uh, you know, a fourth of the book is dedicated to those that last week. And here it says, and in one week shall establish the covenant with many, and in the midst of the week, my sacrifice and drink offering shall be taken away. So what happens when Christ is crucified? Well, the veil of the Holy of Holies is torn in the temple from top to bottom. And the sacrifices of the former way of keeping the covenant are brought to an end because they all point to the cross. You're not going to bring animals into the Holy of Holies anymore because what they symbolize has just happened. It's happened outside over on the hill. And so God rips the temple open. Um, in the midst of that week, uh, they shall cut off, uh, they shall cut off the sacrifice and drink offering. It shall be taken away. And on the temple shall be the abomination of desolations. And at the end of the time, an end shall be put to the desolation. If you read it from the Septuagint, 
it's the Messiah who will make war on the city. He will establish his covenant in one week's time. He will die, but not for himself, and there's no judgment that he comes under. And then the city will be destroyed. The offering will be cut away. The Messiah will bring a prince to destroy the city, and there will be the abomination of desolations. If you read it this way, if you accept this transmission of the text as being what the original focused on, and then you go and you read Christ's discourse at the Temple Mount, where his disciples come and say, you know, look at all these magnificent buildings and these stones, and Christ says, you know, they're all going to get knocked down, and then they turn to him and say, when's that going to happen? Well, he talks about a coming in those passages, the Son of Man will come, but he seems to tie it to the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's really, really tough for those who interpret that sermon on the Temple Mount as talking about the end of time, because the temple has laid in ruins for 2,000 years. There's only one wall still standing, and uh, everything Christ said about the temple has happened, but it was 2,000 years ago. And you sit there going, now, how does this fit an end-of-the-world scenario? Well, it doesn't. When Christ says, I'm going to come, and the city is going to be put to ruin, and the temple is going to be destroyed, and the abomination of desolation is going to be sitting where the temple was, he's talking about, I'm going to use the Romans to destroy unfaithful people who do not have faith in the Messiah. The Roman banner is going to fly over where the temple stood because I have cut off the temple because I am the temple. I am the sacrifice. I am the one who makes a covenant with many. My coming in that context is I have come to bring judgment on Jerusalem, and that's exactly what happens. So when you read it, the way it comes down to the Septuagint, it matches up perfectly with the gospel presentations. Now understand, I believe that Jesus Christ is coming again in glory. The world shall be destroyed. There will be a day of judgment. I'm not saying that that's not taught in the Bible. But I am wondering if that's what's taught in the Sermon on the Temple Mount. Jesus seems to be saying, I'm going to destroy this city again for its unfaithfulness because I am the covenant. And has the ring of truth to it. And Daniel is being taught the covenant. He didn't pray about it, but he fears God. And if you fear God, you will grow in knowing him. And the very central act of God is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and his kingship and our redemption through him. And that is what Daniel's being taught. Christ is the covenant.